1: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Theater Camp Breaks a Leg Edition. It's Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. On today's show, Theater Camp, it's a documentary-style comedy about just what the title says, a summer camp for gloriously talented misfits. It stars Molly Gordon, Ben Platt, and Jimmy Tatro, rhymes with bro, and then the Irish singer-songwriter Sinead O'Connor has died, bringing forth an outpouring of love And grief, whose intensity, I think, has surprised even those of us who feel it most, we will discuss. And finally, the screenwriter and podcast host, John August, joins us to discuss Hollywood on Strike. First, of course, I'm joined by Julia Turner of the L.A. Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic of Slate. Hey, Dana.
2: Hey, Steve.
1: Okay, Theater Camp. It's a feature film in the Christopher Guest-ish style mockumentary. Genre: It's about a theater camp whose revered matriarch has fallen into a coma, and whose leadership role then falls oh so inappropriately to her adult son Troy. I mean, talk about what's the opposite of the theater kid? That's that's Troy. Under his broey mismanagement, the camp is now faced with foreclosure and possible extinction. The film stars Ben Platt and Jimmy Tatro. And Molly Gordon, who co-wrote and co-directed, all right, in the clip we're about to hear, you're going to hear the voices of Platt and Gordon. They play two of the teachers of the camp. Here, they're talking to a group of students before a big, big rehearsal. Let's have a listen.
0: Welcome to the first rehearsal of Jones Still.
3: I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Emotionally, physically, and spiritually, this is our most complicated piece we've ever tried to do. Most ambitious. Now, we only have three weeks to create a masterpiece. It's on you now. It's up to you. So that's on your shoulders, as well as Joan's well-being and her legacy. All on you.
0: But you so deserve it on every level. You guys are so talented, so unbelievable. This will break you. This will fully destroy you. Congratulations on being the most talented kids at camp.
3: (laughs) I mean, Dana, it's always a good sign when we
1: come out of the clip, like, kind of laughing our asses off. I think that's probably a bit of a tell. Uh,
2: I'm on the floor. That's the third time I've heard that scene because I've seen this, (laughs) this film now in the theater Watched it on a link in preparation for the show last night, snorting with laughter in the bathtub <laughs> while watching it. And then just now hearing it again, it's still funny. Okay, I don't want to hear anything against my theater camp because it is my, my darling uh, of the year. I think this is maybe, <laughs> along with You Hurt My Feelings, mm-hmm. the Nicole Hall mm-hmm. Center movie we talked yeah. about a couple months ago, my favorite movie of the year so far. And I know the mockumentary format is overused. I myself have said that many a time about many a show But I will say that this movie wears it so lightly that you kind of forget about it. There's none of the talking head interviews, a la, you know, The Office. Um, There is a sort of, like, jittery camera that's recording the proceedings. But basically, this just feels like a really handcrafted, homemade... Um, you know, like a piece of camp art, you know, like a a, a keychain braided by your kid at camp because it was so lovingly made by all its creators. And a little bit of backstory on the movie. Um, you said it was co-directed by Molly Gordon, who co-stars, and just we just heard her in that scene. She also, along with Ben Platt and Nick Lieberman, who is Molly Gordon's, I believe, romantic partner in life, and Noah Galvin who has been Platt's romantic partner in life and plays a major role in the movie basically all the creators sort of made it together so the songs that the kids sing at theater camp in the ridiculous musical jones still that we just heard the opening rehearsal for are all co-written you know by this group in various configurations. And I I believe the whole thing is based on a short that they made together that they, you know, then later expanded into a movie. So to me, it just it has that very handcrafted feeling, which the best Christopher Guest movies did as well. Um, It also has nicer humor than a Christopher Guest movie. Yeah. It's really, really loving, especially toward the kids. And we'll talk some more about the the kids, but you have to imagine that, that last scene being played to a bunch of sort of, you know, just sweet faced middle schoolers. Like I love that the kids at this theater camp in this movie are actual kids. You know, and there's so many camp movies which are really fun. Wet, hot American summer, right? That are kind of about the raunchy aspect of camp. Like everyone's having sex and drinking behind the lake house or something. And this movie really doesn't have that. It actually would be totally suitable to a for a 12-year-old kid to see it. But I, I found it absolutely hilarious and endearing.
1: Julia, what about
2: you? I also really
4: like this movie. I mean, the thing that struck me as most remarkable about it is that the music really works. Like the this original musical that we <laughs> hear them uh, hyping up in the scene we just listened to, we end up getting to see as part of the grand finale. And it has to do a lot of work, this, the play. It's amazing. You know, we get glimmers of songs. The songs are hilarious. The production design ends up being hilarious and the performances end up being really quite moving and doing a lot of work of emotional weight and catharsis in the plot and that's just so hard to do and especially in a you know pretty small film getting all of that right is a wonderful and b sort of a testament to the one of the qualities of theater camp and theater largely, that is being kind of praised and and sent up in the film, which is like the ability to make something great from nothing.
1: I, I loved this movie. Um, I wasn't sure I did it first. And then its charms are so cumulative in a weird way. It's not, it's very, very funny as we heard, but I wouldn't say it's joke driven. Um, but it made me realize, you know, I existed in this world as a pre-adolescent, right? I did the equivalent of theater camp and more pointedly interned at summer stock theaters when I was in like 7th, 8th, and ninth grade, actually, the, over the summers. And it just gets right how a, a regional theater or a theater camp organizes a young person's world into this little self-contained cosmos with these oddly boundaried... <laughs> pseudo-authority figures whose own hearts kind of are on their sleeves in some sense. I mean, they are kind of, if you look at them from one angle, they are, you know, they're accumulated failures, right? They're sort of quintessentially thwarted adults in one sense. Like, so if you were slightly less kind than this movie is, you could make a biting satire that's more in the direction of Waiting for Guffman, a great movie, but... This film has so much of the heart of these people if you just look at them from the other angle, right? It's It's got a crafted, slightly seat-of-the-pants feel in order to bring you into exactly that world. And then the, it's not just the sort of cumulative charms of it, of being in that world and the nostalgic power it might or might not have for me, but it was also the way it begins to take on a clear... And somewhat traditional narrative shape towards the end so that the payoff is is beautiful. It's like genuinely beautifully, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's genuinely beautifully delivered, which makes this sort of like brilliantly slapdash thing feel actually deeply considered and a work of, of genuine craft.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's worth noting in that context, Steve, that there's a lot of improvisation in yeah. the dialogue. Yeah. So the, that feeling that it's sort of haphazard and yet it comes together really satisfyingly at the end. Beautiful, yeah, I exactly. think in part came from, you know, apparently their process of making it had to do with Designing really carefully what they wanted a scene to get across, but not writing specific dialogue and then having the actors improvise. So, you know, I think a lot of those, those the, the goofiest moments really were things that came up uh, on set. But because the songs were obviously written in advance, even though there's a great joke in the movie about not writing your songs in advance and making them up on the spot. Um, because the songs were, were really well crafted in advance, they kind of land, you know, some of those dramatic points in a, in a more secure way. And that makes yeah. the ending just so satisfi- satisfyingly triumphant, even though it's also really corny. A last thing I wanted to say about Theater Camp is just that I cannot wait to see it with my own daughter, who, as I've often mentioned on the show, is a you know big theater nerd drama person. But I can't right now because guess where she is? <laughs> Sleepaway Theater Camp. Oh, so so she's <laughs> off having some similar Joan Still experience right now, and then I'll, I'll take her to see it.
4: Can I raise one question, though? You mentioned this at the beginning, About the mockumentary format not getting in the way, I would actually frame that slightly differently. The mockumentary format goes away so completely that it feels like they just forgot to go back and extract it from the beginning. Like it doesn't. Yeah, it could be stripped away at all. Like it's just you could just be watching the camp. Like you don't really need. I don't know. It. I mean, it didn't bother me, but it it also felt. A little bit tacked on, I thought, at the end.
2: And I also just, again, want to mention the kids in this, although the kids are not major characters. This is really a movie about the adults running the camp. But the kids are so not the butt of the joke. (laughs) You know, like the idea that that arts education matters and that these kids are having a formative experience is just foundational to the movie, so much so that it doesn't really need to be signposted and talked about all the time and in particular i just wanted to shout out because i know one of these kids and i've seen him perform live several times luke islam the kid who plays i don't know his character's name because like again the kids aren't super differentiated but he's the big plus size kid with a beautiful beautiful voice who sings a bit of, uh, of of gravity defying gravity from wicked Anyway, I've seen that kid perform. He, he did some shows with my daughter when he was in middle school. Then he was on America's Got Talent.
5: Tell us your name. Uh, my name is Luke Islam. Tell us your dream. My dream is to become a star and make it to Broadway. <laughs> So to see that he is now, you know,
2: playing what he actually is in real life, which is a hardcore theater kid in a movie was just so heartwarming. And I'm sure each of those kids comes from a similar story. Yeah.
1: Let me just say quickly, too. It reminds me that, you know, my my daughter, when we were living upstate, was in the orbit of a summer stock theater and she performed there with kids who were theater kids. That's something the movie gets right, too. This is like it's like a safe space for kids who at least traditionally when I was growing up were picked on relentlessly in their other environments, you know, principally school in some sense. And the movie, I think, is sensitive to that. I mean, we've obviously evolved as a world, but it it is a world in which they can fully express themselves to people who are like them. And the movie works with that beautifully because it's about that environment being endangered. And so that has a kind of um, enhanced stakes to it.
2: It also ties the the film in a way that couldn't have been anticipated to the writer's strike, I feel like, because this, this plot MacGuffin you mentioned, I mean, it really is the driver of the conflict in the plot, right? Is that yeah. the forces of capital want to take yeah. over this camp. It's just a piece of land to them, you know? And the, uh, the difference between what it means to the speculators who want the land and the people who run the camp is essentially what's being argued about right now in the writer's strike. So I think part of my solidarity with this movie and my sense of, you know, just tearing up when the grand triumphant finale comes along, has to do with that. It takes the side of the artist. It
4: just wears all of its politics in a lovely, light manner, because it also posits like a rapacious capitalist summer camp concept, which I don't no matter how preppy the camp I don't think any summer camp is rolling in a uh, Private equity money or whatever is posited by this movie in a funny way. Oh,
2: there's some really, really funny jokes about VC and investment <laughs> and, you know, the, the investment influencers who show up toward the end. There's just so many well-landed jokes in this, this movie. It's so good. Please go to theaters and see yeah, Theater here, Camp. Yeah, here,
1: here. Okay, we really pretty much love this movie. It's Theater Camp. It's going wide, I think, now. Please check it out. Please do. And um, if you do, let us know what you thought of it. Okay, let's move on.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card.
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Okay. Now is the moment in our podcast where we typically discuss business. Dana, what do we have today?
2: Stephen, a couple of things this week. First of all, after a summer-long wait and compiling a lot of song submissions from all of you, Summer Strut is coming up. It's our next week's show. It's a special edition that we do every year where all we talk about is music and all the music comes from our listeners. So we're now sub-compiling our sub-lists to send to Chris Melanfi, Slate's pop critic, who will join us for Strut next week. And uh, it's going to be really fun. So please tune in next week and, uh, and be sure to hear whether your song was played. Our only other piece of business is to tell you about our Slate Plus segment today. We're going to talk about a piece in The Atlantic by Charlie Warzel who's been on our show before, uh, who's written about lots of interesting stuff. He's really a jack-of-all-trades. But this particular piece is in praise of phone numbers. He's writing about reasons to love the phone number, something we used to memorize, and now our phone memorizes for us. We will talk about our love for phone numbers or maybe hatred or inability to remember them in this week's Slate Plus segment. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can stay tuned and hear that at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, please consider signing up at slate.com slash I will make my pitch that I make every week. When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, which lots of other Slate shows feature as well, and you will get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate. Most of all, you'll be supporting us, our work, and the work of all the journalism of our colleagues. These memberships matter a lot for Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, back to the show.
1: All right, well, the Irish singer-songwriter Sinead O'Connor has died. She was 56. She started out in the 80s. She broke big in 1987 with the album The Lion and the Cobra, but broke huge in 1990 with the single Nothing Compares to You written by Prince and the brilliant now classic album that it appeared on, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. In 1992, she turned a performance on Saturday Night Live into a protest against child abuse when she ripped up a photo of the Pope. These are the very, very bare bones of a much longer, more complex, more interesting, and more beautiful life uh, that can be done justice to in a span of an introduction. Why don't we start by um, listening to some of that controversial appearance on SNL?
4: We find it necessary...
1: We know we will win, we have confidence in the victory of good over evil. Fight the real enemy. Julia, this artist meant so much to so many people. Um, Begin with what she meant to you, maybe.
4: I think and this may be a false memory but I think I saw that like in real time like I think that you know when the, when that was October 1992 I was in middle school early high school it was exactly when you know you'd be having a sleepover with a friend and like l- watching SNL in real time and and SNL was a particular you know cultural object at that moment I remember seeing it I think I was a fan of her music then but maybe not a mega fan yet um and I remember I think feeling unsettled by it, you know, like I I don't think that I experienced it in the moment as like, wow, what a righteous woman speaking truth to power. I, I experienced it as like, whoa, this singer I really like is super intense. That was a really intense thing to do. You know, after all the ha 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 has that I tuned in for, I think I was confused by it as a kid, you know, and it's interesting to look back on that and look back on the cultural response to her, um, and to listen to some of the lyrics in her songs, which speak to this sense of almost, almost having the personality of like a seer or an otherworldly truth teller or someone who is going to call bullshit without compunction. Uh, and without regard for how it makes anybody feel in any given moment. Um, I don't know. That's that has what has struck me looking back. Mm. Dana, what about you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I want to say much more than, than just making it about ourselves, but I do have to say that you know, of of celebrity deaths of the recent, I don't know, decade or so, this one maybe hit me among the hardest. I mean, she's exactly my age. She's maybe a few months younger than me. Uh, I absolutely loved her album, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, the summer it came out. And that happened to be a summer when I was I was living in Brazil that summer, and I was exactly her age, so I guess I was 23. And living through a moment of, you know, kind of romantic abandonment, heartbreak, which the album on its surface is about. The album seems to be a sort of concept breakup album, but once you know more about her life, you realize that it is actually completely about her childhood. And uh, and she says in this documentary, Nothing Compares, that you can watch streaming on, on Paramount Plus right now, um, there's some interview footage where she says, every time I sang, Nothing Compares to You, including the video of it, you know, the famous very close-up image of her face where she cries while singing it, I was thinking of my mother. And, you know, the story of, of her her abuse by her mother is absolutely horrifying. She it was really the thing that she was kind of expiating through almost all of her early music, and she was very upfront about it. So many songs that appear to be songs about romantic longing and heartbreak were songs about, you know, her heartbreak, about her lost childhood. Um, so, yeah, in the last, I guess it's been five days now that we're taping since she died, and even before I knew that we would be going you know, on this journey of, of researching her for the podcast, I just fell down such a Sinead rabbit hole. And it really just struck me what a punk she is. That gesture on on Saturday Night Live was punk in the purest sense, not in the sense that she sang punk style music, mm-hmm. but that she, mm-hmm. as Julia said, was just this pure figure of just burning passion against injustice. It was not a posture, it was not a pose, it was something that tore her apart. And What really struck me about that SNL moment is not just the tearing of the picture, which, by the way, is the actual picture she took down from her mother's wall after her mother died of the Pope. So she's also ripping off what Catholicism was in her Mm -hmm. childhood and what it was in Ireland at that moment for for everyone, for all women especially. Uh, But the song she sang before, right? The fact that instead of getting up and promoting her new album on SNL, as she was supposed to do, she sings this Bob Marley song a cappella called War, this anti-war protest.
5: The philosophy which holds one
1: race superior and another inferior Is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned
2: Everywhere is war And then rips up a picture of the Pope. I mean, the whole thing was this moment of punk protest. And there's a great story in the documentary where her manager says, her manager who loved her, but, you know, was constantly having to to cover for her because she would say and do whatever she felt in any interview moment or on stage. Her manager went to her and said, I'm sorry, but I really can't, I can't get you out of this one. And, and Sinead was smiling. She said, I don't want to be gotten out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, So yeah. she was, although obviously later she had very conflicted, troubled times in her life and all kinds of internal struggles, she was free on stage. You know, mm-hmm. She was just a born performer yeah. and had this born confidence on stage. In relation to that, I wanted to throw to a song from her first album called Troy that I think many people consider kind of her masterpiece. It's a difficult song to listen to. She only sang it live for one year while touring that album and she said something beautiful about it which was the purpose of writing and singing a song like Troy's is to get to a place where I don't have to sing it anymore and it's explicitly a song about her abuse as a child which again could completely pass itself off as a song of romantic pain rather than, you know, filial pain
1: I remember it I'm in a rainstorm Sitting in the long grass
2: in the summer Keeping warm
0: i memory remember it Every restless
2: night We were so young then We thought that everything we could possibly do was right That's a hard one to play a clip of because Troy's an unusually structured song that doesn't really have a chorus or a verse. It's this slow narrative build uh, to this just scream at the end where she's the last three lines of the song repeated three times is you're still a liar. And again, it could, it's, it's both a protest against a lover and a protest against her own mistreatment. The opening images of the song, the bit that we heard about sitting in the tall grass, sitting in the long grass in summer, keeping warm, is actually a childhood memory she recounts in several places of her mother who was mentally ill. And it sounds like, you know, incredibly, incredibly difficult and abusive was angry about something after Sinead's father left and made her and possibly her siblings as well live in the garden for a week there was a whole period where they couldn't come in the house and they would look up at night and see the light on in the house and wait to be let in and not be let in and Mm. when you know that man it's it breaks your heart to hear that song
1: yeah that voice is so uniquely powerful right it's like this balance of tenderness and rage at every moment right it's it's you know, it has the outrage of a protest singer, of an angry protest singer, and all the tenderness of Ashanta's at the same time. Um, I saw that moment live on Saturday Night Live, and this is pre-internet. So this extremely disorienting, confusing thing happens after singing this a cappella, as you say, Dana, song, you know, out kind of out of nowhere in this, in this enraged, very beautiful, but enraged voice. And it, the performance alone was... It's sort of unnerving. And then she rips up this photo, and I didn't even see who the photo was of, right? You just sensed how shocking it was for her to have done it. Then you have to wait at least a day for a media reporter to nail it, the story down and on and on. And funnily enough, then you get this grotesque backlash among, if I recall, Sinatra came out almost effectively threatening to clock her. Joe Pesci, the following week on Saturday Night Live, I think we should listen to it. It's so shocking to hear it, says that, he, you know, if only he'd been there. I mean, we should play it, but a revolting sentiment. Anyway, I think we should listen to the Pesci. It's so shocking to hear it now in retrospect.
5: I mean, why should I let it bother me, right? It wasn't my show. It was Tim Robbins' show. But I'll tell you one thing. She was very lucky it wasn't my show. Because if it was my show... Oh, it gave us such a smack. (laughs) You know, people need
1: to process how, like, not long ago in 1992, you could have total shocked silence at her singing the song. Not one vocalization of approval from that audience. And you could have a roar of laughter at the threat of violence against this woman by Pesci. what a what a piece of shit for saying that a, and then the substance of the accusation she's making that there's an endemic problem of child abuse in the Catholic church was also totally shocking. It was like, it was like the courage of saying the thing that a culture can't say. It's so shocking. It's so offensive. It's, You're just terrifying to confront the truth and someone actually says it on fucking Saturday Night Live. And then how long it took to fully vindicate her. I mean, thanks to the unrelenting courage of the abused principally, but as consecrated by the Hollywood movie Spotlight, you know, she was completely vindicated. You should rip up the Picture of the Pope, right? It was it was this kind of moment of righteous hyperbole that, at the time, even after you sort of figured out what she'd done, you were like, "What? You know, is that just?" And then in retrospect, no, she was just telling the world the truth.
2: Well, she was actually ripping it up for a lot more reasons even yeah, than the, no the child abuse scandal, no right? Doubt. I mean, she's talking about abortion and about women's rights in Ireland, which when she was growing up were essentially that women could not own property or get divorces or get bank accounts, right? I mean, the Pope for her, she just she was a deeply religious person and late in life converted to Islam and had all kinds of you know very conflicting and sometimes upsetting relationships to religion. Like I think after she converted to Islam, she said some kind of upsetting things on social media about Everybody who wasn't Muslim being a terrible person. But it was all, I think, part of this, like, fierce purity that she had, you know, and this just hatred of kind of corrupt institutions. And uh, and Julia's right that she was so consistent. About that across so many platforms, you know, and just I heard an interview with her in in my research process where somebody said, oh, we want to sort out. Could you sort out your relationship to the Catholic Church? And she responded, you know, she always had a very low, low key tone in interviews. No, no kind of drama. But she said it should sort out its relationship with itself. That's a Mm -hmm. lot more important. (laughs) Can we
4: listen actually to um, the there's a set of lyrics in Emperor's New Clothes that just kept resonating for me and I kept coming back to as I've been reading about her and thinking about her in the last week can, can we play it here Everyone. yeah, I just find that lyric so haunting, especially as I've reconsidered my own response to that moment. and And Steve, I'm glad I'm not crazy to have thought that it seemed sort of anticlimactic and confusing in the in the minute of it, actually. Um, but yeah, what she said was not wrong. It was not wrong.
1: I just think it's important to say one thing before we go, because we somewhat centered this episode of Saturday Night Live. She didn't. She said, that didn't derail my career. That's bullshit. She was always very insistent about that. She said, what derailed my career was the fuck you, I said, to the demands of pop stardom, especially as they devolve on, on young women. Um, she really never relinquished her agency to the uh, people who persecuted uh, her after that. And really said no to what was there waiting for her. And
2: that's right there in the bald head and the no makeup and the cut off jeans she would perform in. I mean, in a crazy way, although she was a straight woman, she was also such a queer icon. And you can really see that she must have meant a lot to people who were gender nonconforming in the early 90s because she did not give a crap. Absolutely. All right. um, Please send us your thoughts about Sinead O'Connor,
1: who's dearly lost at the age of 56. All right. um, Moving on. Okay. Well, as I'm sure you've heard, both the writers and the actors are now on strike in Hollywood. This is the first so-called double strike in Hollywood since 1960. Ironically, the head of SAG at the time, the Screen Actors Guild, was uh, Ronald Reagan. Um, We're joined now by John August, the screenwriter and podcaster, to talk us through what's going on in Hollywood now. John, welcome to the podcast. It's a great
3: honor to have you on. Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure to be back here talking with you guys
1: you're on for a bunch of different reasons, John, but one of them is your special proximity to the strike. You're on the negotiating committee um, for the Writers Guild. Why don't you give us some background and an update on where we are
3: right now in in the negotiations? Absolutely. So some table setting that might be helpful because listeners might not know that Hollywood is very, very unionized compared to almost any other industry in America. So if you're watching a movie and you're looking at those end credits roll past, except for visual effects, Pretty much every person listed there is going to be in a union that covers their specific area of work. So they're being paid specific rates and have rules to protect them. And then every three years, those unions have to negotiate with the companies about a new contract. And, but they don't negotiate with one company at a time. It's not like what the Teamsters and UPS just had their negotiation. Instead, uh, each of the unions has to negotiate with all the companies at once. It's a group called the AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. And that's the collective that means Warner Brothers, Paramount, Sony, Netflix, Apple, and Amazon, all the studios. And that's what I think is so fascinating about how this all works because these companies are right now locked in a streaming war. They're all in this battle to see who can survive. And the only weapons that they have in this battle are the writers and actors and the shows that we make for them. Um, so, So now for the first time in 63 years since Ronald Reagan was head of SAG, the writers and actors are out at the same time. And it's not clear what the companies are going to do next in order to try to resolve these strikes or if they're in some kind of weird mutual suicide pact.
4: I have one question about the dynamic with the actors joining. So this Mm -hmm. is now the third week of the actors strike. And a a thought I had a question I had when they joined was, is them joining the picket lines, them them in their own negotiation for their Mm -hmm. own agreement, which is different and has some similar and some different issues to the issues that the writers are on strike about, which, which we can get into. Um, Does that seem likely to hasten the companies to the table and and hasten a resolution just because there's more pressure and less can happen with both guilds out? Or does it tip things in the other direction because it it makes it seem or feel that the two sides are so far apart uh, that it will take longer to get a resolution. I recognize, I'm trying yeah. to not just directly ask how long is this going
3: to last, because I know that that's the... Uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the impossible pen- to answer question. I think the answer to your question, like, does it, you know, increase the pressure or make things murkier? The answer is both. It um, Because, you know, with the actors out on strike, clearly nothing is filming right now and nothing can be filming for a period of time. But also these actors can't do promotion on the movies and TV shows they've already made. The Emmys have already been pushed back. The Oscars are going to be in jeopardy. Um, you know, These companies, uh, you know, they can show to their shareholders that, like, oh, look how much money we're saving by not making film and television, but their business is making film and television. So, at a certain uh, point, that cost is going to come due. I'd say actors have been out on the picket lines with us since the start of the WGA strike um, because they've recognized that there's really a shared issue here. I mean, the reason why the actors are out on strike with us is classic, you know, labor conditions and pay. So, both actors and writers are earning less today than they were five years ago, 10 years ago. And that's we all recognize that's largely because of streaming. These companies, they blew up their very successful business models to chase Netflix. And they're making movies and shows exclusively for their streaming platforms. And in the process, they also threw out all of the norms that had sustained the business for decades. Things like having writers on set through production, having actors as series regulars rather than guest stars. There's the sense that they've been trying to save pennies Um, And in the process, destroying Hollywood's big advantage in the world, which is that we have this incredibly well-trained workforce ready to make film and television at the highest level. And that's, you know, they they seem to have forgotten that in the process of trying to make these shows into movies for their streaming services.
2: John, I had a question about just how Mm. things feel on the ground in terms of the apparent really bad faith that the AMPTP is negotiating in. And Mm. the way that trickles down to us, you know, the people observing it from the sidelines as interested observers but not participants, is that they almost seem to be... Just delivering a, a deliberate fuck you to the yeah. to their striking workers. I mean, in some cases, literally, I'm thinking of this clip that should have gone viral. I mean, on Twitter of the old days where people could find what yeah. they wanted to find, it would have gone viral. A clip from Netflix, Netflix headquarters where a bunch of workers were striking outside and in a corner office, a glassed-in office... Netflix had placed this giant foam hand giving the finger. It was a it was a freebie prop yeah. from the show Beef, the Netflix show yeah. Beef, uh, which I guess they had lying around the office. Just basically a giant hand like you would have at a football game, right? But, but giving mm-hmm. the finger. They place it in a corner office, clearly where the strikers are meant to see it, right? So a literal fuck you from management to the workers on strike. And when you hear about things like that or that unbelievably ill-advised statement that was somehow released to, I believe it was Deadline Hollywood about, mm-hmm. you know, waiting until people... People start losing their homes, right? That that completely did go viral, and you know, made them look really bad. Anyway, I'm just wondering because this is turning me into normal Ray, just as an observer, <laughs> and I just want to know what the reaction to strikers on the ground is. Do you think that's getting people more riled up, or is it creating a feeling of hopelessness?
3: Yeah. So right after we record this segment, I'm headed off to Netflix because that's my my morning picket location. So I'll, I'll be there right where that corner and that foam finger were. Um, I would say that the mood on the ground has been um, sort of disbelief, but also recognition that there's, the response we get back from the MPTP is, feels like gaslighting. Like they're saying like, oh, these you're telling us all these problems, but they're not really problems. The business is survivable. We're struggling to make money ourselves. Uh, meanwhile, our CEOs are earning these record salaries. Um, people recognize that for what it is. It's also important, I think, there's a a miss, understanding on the management side of in terms of like how much writers and actors are hurting and how much they need to see fundamental changes i think there was a belief that this quote about like you know we will you know keep people out until october and they start to lose their houses um uh, chris kaiser who's our negotiating co-chair says you can starve a labor force quickly or slowly and uh the strike feels like you know you're trying to make them feel pain very suddenly. But the truth is we've been feeling pain for five years, for 10 years. We recognize that if we don't resolve these problems now, uh, there's not gonna be a job to go back to.
4: You know, I think there are some probably on the studio side who... I think there's, as there is in the guilds, a range of opinions, there's probably a range of opinions and views on the studio side as well. I certainly have heard arguments from that end of things that I'd be curious to hear your response to, John. Mm -hmm. You know, one being, well, one being a lot of studio folks grumbling that that anonymous quote to Deadline was so cackling evil villain and so thinly sourced that it feels unlikely that anyone with any actual position of authority Mm -hmm. actually truly said it to anybody. (laughs) So, nonetheless, it was published and probably somebody said something, but um, I've heard skepticism about that quote or a a desire to distance themselves from the actual let it burn sentiments there. Um, And then I've also heard that the argument mounted that in the streaming era, it's not that compensation is less, it's just that it's structured differently and that when producers and writers were taking bigger upfront checks at the beginning um, and, you know, letting go of get, trying to get residuals in the event of success at the end, that, that, that that's sort of a, a bargain or a change that maybe seemed okay at the time and now doesn't seem okay at the picket line. I'm, I'm doing a bad job summarizing this position or this counter argument, but I'm curious what your response is to it.
3: Yeah, so what you're talking about is the the change in sort of the business model in terms of, you know, especially as we go into streaming, where we're making... Uh, shorter seasons of more shows. And so a show would be eight episodes rather than being the classic 22 episodes of a broadcast season. And that those eight episodes, yes, you're not going to be working for as many weeks. Uh, and But they've they turned this into uh, this monster called the mini room, which is that you're hiring a small number of writers for a small number of weeks and you're asking them to crank out eight episodes of that TV show. The scripts are written, they fire all the writers and then they go off and produce it with just that one showrunner left to oversee production. Um, that is a crisis for those writers who are not getting paid during the production, um, but they're also not getting the experience of actually making a TV show. Um, So it's not just that their uh, upfront pay is lower because they're not working the same number of weeks as before, um, but they're not getting the experience to actually on how to make a TV show. They're not going to set. I talked to writers on the picket line who've been staff writers on four or five different series. They've never been to set. They have no idea how to go from the words they've written to um, you know, an actual show that's gone all the way through production and post-production, they don't know the process. And that is an upcoming crisis that if we don't resolve now, um, they're not gonna be able to make TV shows and movies at the same quality, you know, five years, 10 years down the road, because you just won't have this trained workforce who knows how to do it.
4: I'm curious to have you zoom out. You were in Hollywood and on the picket lines when the Writers Guild last struck 15 Mm -hmm. odd years ago. Um, But a lot has changed in our culture since then. Uh, Social media exists now. There are different ways of getting information. Um, The labor movement is at a different place. The power of protest, as you mentioned, is understood in a different way. Um, How does it feel this time uh, compared to last time?
3: It feels like night and day. It's a completely different experience being on the picket lines today than back in the, the last strike 2007, seven two thousand eight. Um, obviously, the rise of social media means that writers can communicate about sort of what's important to them directly. They're not re- not relying on Deadline Hollywood or some website to be the, the focus of uh, getting the word out there. Um, it's a summer strike versus a winter strike. Uh, just it's it's sunny, it's hot, but it's also it's more pleasant to be outside. Um, the most crucial difference by far, though, is that. In the last strike, we did not have the support of the other unions. And I think the management was counting on that being the same case. They were using the same playbook where uh, we would go out on strike. They would make a deal with the DJA, with Screen Actors Guild, with the other guilds, and we'd be out there by ourselves and we'd have to sort of take the, the crappy deal. Um, in this case... The Teamsters, who drive all the trucks, they were not willing to cross our picket lines. So production stopped very, very quickly. Uh, IOTC, who represents most of the um, below-the-line workers in Hollywood, people who are actually making the films, uh, they were also supporting us and coming out to our lines. Actors were out on our lines at the start. DGA was much more um, militant than they've ever been before. Um, All the unions sort of came together in a way that was was new. Um, But it really wasn't just the Hollywood unions. We also saw support from... uh, laborers and uh, hotel workers and other unions that were struggling about with the same kinds of workplace and pay issues. And we sort of saw a, a shared struggle that was just completely different than our experience in 2007.
1: John, just if you would just talk maybe a little bit about the larger moment labor might be having now and why this might be the front Line of it in some sense. You've got this legacy venerated, venerable legacy business of Hollywood that, as you say, is very unusual for having been unionized to the gills and then stayed that way against every trend. And you have the introduction of a streaming and therefore tech model of, you know, with all that implies, which, as you say, kind of casualizing the labor force, offshoring absolutely everything that you can. It's all about brand value, IP, these kind of super. You know, premium um, intangibles, and they're they're they've heaved towards one another and met on your picket line in some sense. So maybe just if you could address that a, a little bit.
3: Well, I think this last year we've seen you know unionization happening at Starbucks, at Amazon. We've seen. Uh, Teamsters reaching a, a deal, a groundbreaking deal with uh, UPS. Which you know, if that had gone on strike, that would have been a huge blow to the economy. I think there's a recognition that uh, labor and organization uh, can affect some change against these giant corporations that are only getting more powerful. Uh, I think one of the reasons why there was such an attention to the WJ strike at the start of this was we were one of the first unions that was going on strike over AI, in part. Um, so the issue of you know whether material generated by these AI large language models could be used to create scripts or treatments or things that we might be brought in to rewrite at a lower rate. We were one of the first companies that were trying to put AI into our contract and really defined limits on what the companies could do. Um, so it, I think everyone in labor recognizes this is a challenging time. It feels like we are in this forest fire um, and, and we have to, there's some existential issues in this fire. But we also look up at the sky and we see that there's this meteor called AI headed at us. And so we have to both deal with the forest fire and the, uh, the meteor headed towards us. And that's the, the Jerry Bruckheimer movie I think we have all find ourselves in at this moment.
4: John, before we wrap up, I want to ask you not to represent all of screenwriterdom and or all of labor and or all of humanity against the AI, but only yeah. your, yourself for a minute. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing okay. I would say that I've used more sunscreen in the last uh, 12 weeks than in the first 50 years of my life. Uh, It's so (laughs) weird being outside that much. I wear my big, big, dumb floppy hat. Um, I love being around other writers. I do feel these pangs of missing the projects that I left in limbo when this all started. It does feel a little bit like the pandemic where suddenly like everything just got put on pause. And so I have all these things that are halfway done. The movies that are, I'm supposed to be taking out to pitch. Uh, a series that I wrote that we need to see what happens next. Um, there's an animated show that I'm doing that they're racing ahead and doing uh, all this test animation and I can't see it or be part of it. And so I, 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 whenever this is resolves, I'll come back to it. There's a weird limbo feeling to it that is uh, unavoidable. It's just because everything is just on pause. Uh, and until this gets resolved, those projects just won't exist.
1: Okay, John. I hope this strike is over quickly. If it's not, I hope we get to do this on an ongoing basis. Um, is there any chance you'd stick around and endorse
3: with us? I would absolutely love to endorse. I'll find something good to recommend.
1: Ah, fabulous. What an honor. Thanks. Okay, well, John August is a tremendous script writer, wrote one of my favorite indie movies of the 90s, Go! Uh, also wrote Big Fish, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, and he's the host of the wonderful podcast, Script Notes. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dana, what do you have?
2: My endorsement is related to our Sinead O'Connor segment. I had so many specific songs I wanted to shout out that I didn't talk very much about this one, which doesn't appear on a proper album of Sinead's. It's on an album by the Irish folk group, The Chieftains, that has a bunch of different Irish folk singers rotating through. There's two songs by Sinead. The one that I wanted to point to is called The Foggy Dew. And it's a a traditional Irish ballad that I guess I'm going to probably get something wrong about this tune's history, but it was rewritten in 1916 on the occasion of the Easter riots. Like a new lyric was supplied to this ancient folk song in order to Tell the story of the Irish uprising against the British. And Sinead just sings it with such passion and eerie intensity. And she's absolutely incredible in that traditional Irish folk protest singing mode. And it's something that you won't hear if you go through her entire discography. You have to go to a different record. So I wanted to point people to it. There's a fantastic live performance of it that she gives with the Chieftains. And we'll put a link to that on our show page, The Foggy
1: Dew. great. Julia, what about you?
4: Uh, I'm a big believer in lighting candles at dinner. Uh, I just, it, like, we don't, and my family have dinner together every night, but when we do have dinner, I light candles, uh, despite the slight risk that I don't trust anyone else in my house to put out the candles except me, so I always snuff them immediately when I leave the table. But there is a company called Mole Hollow Candles uh, that you can purchase candles from online. They've been making candles since the 60s, and they have... The best colors, like the colors of candles that they make are so interesting and surprising and weird. And it gives me so much pleasure to have a couple boxes of them in a drawer and pick different ones. And right now I have this like bright electric citron green, which is just a very kind of untraditional color to have such a traditional taper candle object. Anyway, it is a small moment of ritual and joy in my family life. And if you are a candle person or considering being a candle person, uh, check out Mole Hollow. Really, really amazing array of colors. Say the name again. Mole Hollow, like a hollow where moles live. Where a little mole lives. Uh,
1: Okay, Mole Hollow. Um, John, what do you have?
3: I have a book for us. Uh, It is This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. And uh, this book is hard to describe. It is a science fiction, romance, with these two agents who are battling across these multiple timelines, which sounds very sci-fi and sounds like a lot, um, but it's actually really beautiful and intimate. It's largely structured as an epistolary novel, so letters being exchanged back and forth, kind of. Um, But the world-building is really, really cool. And what's interesting about this book is that it got acclaim when it came out, but it was never a hit. And then back in May, there was a tweet uh, by this guy named Nicholas Wolfwood uh, who was like a, a science fiction person recommending oh, yeah. this
2: book.
0: And <laughs> I it, remember it suddenly went tweet. viral.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> I think and, he said uh, something like, stop what you're doing right now and go read this book. And the sales of the book spiked by some huge number.
3: <laughs> and uh, and that's the whole reason why I, it was put on my radar. And I'm so grateful for... Uh, uh, Nicholas Wolfwood for a uh, big, big list, Wolfwood for uh, doing this because uh, I would not have known this book. And I really, really dug it. It's cool. There's a, apparently a TV adaptation that the authors are trying to do. I can't even, even imagine how they're going to do it. Um, because it does feel so unfilmable, but, uh, I just really loved it. So this is how you lose the time war.
1: Ah, that sounds, that sounds very cool. Okay. So typically on endorsements, I don't bandwagon a winner, um, just seems a little bit redundant, pointless, but, um, and, you know, Patrick Radden Keith at this point in his career doesn't need a shout out from me, but uh, he did a profile of Larry Gagosian, the art dealer in The New Yorker, that was a classic New Yorker profile. I mean, it certainly was 6,000, might have even been eight or 10,000 words long. It has all of the best features of a great profile. Uh, immense amounts of seemingly lightly controlled access to the subject, who's nothing if not colorful, Um, moving relatively freely in a highly rarefied world about which everyone feels a kind of sick curiosity, I think, these days. Um, And an implicit point, which is, or not so implicit point, but a very beautifully delivered point about how this one person has presided over the transition of the art world from what it was pre-1980 to the art market um, that's now dominated by super high prices and catering to the uber, uber, uber rich um, without being polemical about it at all. But you escape the profile believing what you sort of, n- with more confidence, what you suspected when you went in that something has gone horribly wrong and it has infected the production of art. The way art is now being made, it has so changed the definition of it that it's not what might have been thought of as art pre 1980. I mean, that might be slightly hyperbolically put, but it's in The New Yorker. It's by Patrick Radden-Keefe, a profile of Larry Gagosian. We'll link to it. John, thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: My absolute pleasure.
1: Yeah, huge pleasure. And I hope again soon with a sunnier excuse. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Brittell. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, and John August, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.